Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Curtis Yarvin, author of The Gray Mirror Substack, which I subscribe to and have since it came out. He previously wrote the Unqualified Reservations blog under the pen name Mencius Moldbug. As Moldbug, he was the founder of the anti-egalitarian and anti-democratic movement known as Neo-Reaction. You sometimes see it abbreviated as NRX. Welcome, Curtis. Hey, Jim. What's up? Pleasure to be on your show again. Yeah, great to have you back. Today, we're going to talk about Curtis's proposal to replace our current government with a monarchy. And he ain't <laughs> fooled around. You know, this is not a metaphor. We're talking about a fucking king, right? And, <laughs> and this episode is part of an ongoing series of explorations that I've been undertaking on the problems of our current representative democracy and possible alternatives. Way back in EP32, I talked with Jason Brennan on his book, Irrational Democracy, where he laid out some rather radically different alternatives to democracy. And quite recently in EP 153, where we had Forrest Landry on, and he laid out some of the non-obvious problems around voting as a method, particularly the fact that, you know, 48% of the people are pissed off most of the time, right? And we talked quite a bit about alternatives to voting as a way for making decisions, though we were focusing in that episode more on small groups rather than at the polity level. Finally, before we hop in, I should say that my own personal orientation, as regular listeners will know, starts in a different direction, more egalitarian and less centralized than what we have today. And my at least initial inclinations are not towards a top-down or centralized scheme like monarchy, even though many of us may find Curtis's ideas outrageous or even dangerous. You know, as I've been reading Curtis for a long time, all the way back to the mold bug days, and while my initial positions are different than his, I can say with a high degree of confidence that he is no fool, and our conversation will be an interesting one. So with that, let's hop in. All right. For a couple of references, we're going to talk about different of his Substack essays and some of the other essays. But from the starting point uh, are two essays, one titled Policies of the Deep Right and the other one, Monarchism and Fascism Today. So let's start out with the Yarvinian, if that's a, a word, assessment of the current situation of our society. Well, you had, um, before uh, before the show, you chatted a little bit about the system that was developed in Germany called liquid democracy. And you're, you're a fan of liquid democracy. I read your Medium essay. You're a fan of liquid democracy, as I understand it. And I thought, I've always thought that, you know, this design of liquid democracy really emphasizes, it, it's it's a wonderful thought experiment for sort of understanding what I see as a sort of the gap between the sort of symbolic and objective realities of politics in our time. Do you want to describe, should I try and describe liquid democracy or do you want to give it a shot? I would, maybe we can do it very briefly. I didn't really want to get bogged down into a discussion of it, but essentially it's direct democracy 
every person can, in theory, vote on everything, but the expectation is very few people will. And you can proxy your vote to somebody else. And at least in my version of liquid democracy, and there's various flavors, started with the Pirate Party in Germany, I propose having multiple categories about equal to the number of federal departments today. And so you have let's say, 20 proxies, one for defense, one for health, one for education, et cetera. And you can proxy any of those 20 to whoever you want, and they can reproxy them. So the example I like to give is, yeah, you might give your defense proxy to your uncle, the Air Force colonel. You might give your education proxy to your favorite third grade school teacher, and you might give your health care proxy to your doctor. The idea is that you would pass, and most people would pass their proxy up the gradient of knowledge. Because, you know, clearly most of us don't know jack shit about most of the things that go into making good policy. And so the idea is that recursively, these proxies move towards people who know more than, than we do. And then those people actually propose laws and vote on them. So it's essentially a way to implement direct democracy at scale via proxy. That's that's in short. All right. That's uh, that's I, I think accords pretty well with my understanding of the design. So one way to look at that design is to say. What are the goals of this system? What are the sort of purposes that it fulfills in the minds of its supporters in your mind? And let me try to model those goals and see if you'll agree with those goals. So in my mind, basically, the goals of a system like this or the goals of democracy as understood by this is, first of all, you're trying to collect the wisdom of crowds. You have this enormous crowd out there, which is the crowd of voters. And you're basically saying, okay, there's some wisdom out there. The purpose of democracy, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, like the purpose of democracy is to have a government that works well, right? Yep. And to give the people what they want, let them discover what they want and give them what they want. As H.L. Mencken used to say, the art of democracy is giving the people what they want, good good and hard, right? Yeah, yeah. And Mencken also said that in a, in a democracy, people get what they deserve and get the government they deserve. And so, uh, you know, he, he really had a fine edge to him, Mencken. I wonder what he'd think of. Of Baltimore today, I like to imagine H.L. Mencken, you know, the sage of Baltimore, which was a largely German city. I don't know if you knew this at the time. There was a huge German population. I like to imagine H.L. Mencken watching The Wire. But oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, by the way, a huge Mencken fan. Have every one of his books, including oddities mm. such as his baby book. His baby book. Wow. Yeah, he wrote a, a book, purely a potboiler, for how to uh, take care of babies. It's hilarious. And I even have his book by his brother called By the Net. The history of hanging. How about that? <laughs> That's great. That's great. You should try. You should try a peer of Mencken's, Albert J. Nock. I always recommend his. Um, he was sort of one of the fellow editors of the time who sort of went in an off-message direction. I, re I really, really recommend his his memoir, Memoirs of a Superfluous Man. Absolutely wonderful reading. So anyway, let's let's get back to uh, liquid democracy. So basically. There's two goals here. One is to collect the wisdom of the people and funnel it into making effective public policy. And two, I'm going to sort of translate your goal into more, I guess I would say, 
realistic or Machiavellian terms. The other goal, which is also very, very important to a lot of people, is simply making people feel that they're in charge, giving them the feeling of importance, which they get from democracy. And that feeling of importance is very emotionally dear to a lot of people. If you told someone that they would lose the right to vote, for instance, they would not calculate that in terms of I'm losing the right to vote. Therefore, my positive effect, the my effect on the wisdom of crowds will no longer be heard. Therefore, the crowd will be slightly less unwise. Therefore, I will be governed slightly worse. Nobody thinks that. They think instead, oh, I'm losing my right to vote. I'm losing my power. I'm losing this sense of power that that this had. And even though this is negligible in a sort of overall game theoretic sense, it gives me this sense of importance, which I really value as a human being. My sense of importance has been taken from me. I feel castrated, right? And so, you know, the thing is that one of the things you have to acknowledge that democracy is feeding is basically this human power drive, which is of very, very important and very neglected part of human psychology. People want to feel important. They want to feel like they matter. They live for several million years in basically chimpanzee societies where the chief chimp reproduces and the alpha female, you know, gets the chief chimp. And anyone who's not high up on the power scale gets hosed. And so they really, really they really, really crave power or they crave the feeling of power, at least, because no one craves the thing. They crave the feeling of the thing. Sound good so far? So, okay. So, so here is, here are the unexamined assumptions behind liquid democracy, which makes, make it make complete sense if you don't examine the assumptions. The primary, you know, unexamined assumption here is that the democracy is actually in control of the state. And so if the democracy is actually in control of the state and its policy is setting state policy, then obviously your goal is to, if you want better government, your goal is to basically get the best policy out of the top. However, if democracy is either not in control or not fully in control of the state, you have a very different situation. Because actually, if you have any power structure that is not in absolute control of the state and believes that it can do policy better than whatever form or faction or power or force is in control of the state, then the primary goal of this power Let's say that it has a small but not large amount of power. The primary goal of its actions in any game theoretic sense should not be, okay, how do I gain the fruits of the power that I have, but how do I give myself more power? And so every, basically, in a real-life political system, you can't assume that any force maintains absolute power, or just because it has absolute power on paper has absolute power. You know, Queen Elizabeth II has absolute power on paper. So literally, she has what's called reserve powers. She could, you know, call it the army tomorrow. And strangely, she doesn't. And so when you're basically saying, okay, 
liquid democracy is a very good thought experiment because basically my point about liquid democracy is that it is not optimized to contend for power. And it does not seem to, you know, it takes, and, and this is the way most of the most people think about these political systems. They sort of take certain points as axioms and they forget that if you take two plus two equals five as an axiom, you can prove all sorts of wild and crazy stuff. You can prove amazing things. And so to think about basically designing liquid democracy for a world in which democracy is one of several forces contending to control the state is a very different way of thinking about democracy when you say, okay, we're going to take it as an axiom that this force does control the state. And that's a good point. Yeah. And by the way, let's not go too far. I mean, I did not intend to do yeah. this podcast about liquid democracy. So let's no, wrap this no. up quickly and move on. But my, yeah, and I will say that the liquid democracy as envisioned and talked about typically is to replace the legislative function and not the executive. And so it leaves open the question of the executive. And I was actually thinking about it when I was doing my prep this morning. One could, if one thought it wise, implement an elective monarchy via liquid democracy. There's nothing incompatible between the two. You would just have to have yeah. boundaries on the monarch, ways to recall them, and you know all those kinds of things. So if you want to make a few final comments about liquid democracy, I do really want to spend our time moving into your ideas on monarchy, et cetera. I want to actually segue from liquid democracy to monarchy. That sounds good. Let's do it. When you mention the the legislative branch, it's interesting because, you know, one experiment, and I encourage you to try or anyone listening to try this experiment in practice, is to go to D.C. and talk to anyone who works in government. And you can just say to them, the government doesn't really have an executive branch. It has a legislative branch. And they'll kind of look at you funny for a moment, and then they'll be like, oh, yeah, of course. Because what we, you know, what you call in DC, the agencies are basically very tightly micromanaged down to very precise levels of policy and budget by these bills, which we call laws, but are in fact sort of more like, I don't, you know, they're not really laws, but the extent to which agencies, for example, my mother worked at DOE, for example. So, you know, with DOE, you have a vast staff of people that are at the agency that are coordinating with the staff on the Hill. And they will come and testify before Congress. Nobody ever comes and testifies before the White House. The White House basically sends, you know, all of these systems would actually work better without the White House. So you have this first sort of problem when you're sort of imagining an executive and something like liquid democracy, which is that the executive branch doesn't actually exist. We don't have an executive. Now, since as you mentioned that, in one of my thought experiments with liquid democracy, there would not be a unified executive. Rather, each of the 20 domain areas would have their own executive and their own revenue sources, right? So you'd have right. 20 mini execs, that each, like education, defense, healthcare, et cetera, and would each one would be funded separately. Jim, have, have you ever worked in the private sector? That's where I've worked my whole life. Can you imagine running a company that way? Having it a, a single executive for a- No, having, 
Yeah, having 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 twenty executives. Uh, so you'd have one executive for like software quality. You'd have one executive for. But I tell you, this is different because this is more like having one executive for Tesla, one executive for Ford, one executive for Boeing. Because I would suggest that the twenty domains, the cross linkages are minimal, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, depends what you're doing, I suppose. Um, yeah. Anyway. Let me get back to my my sort of point or thought experiment. So sure. if we imagine for a moment that basically the power of politicians over this machine, which means that imagine we're basically imagining something like liquid democracy, but we recognize that the power of politicians and thus voters over these machines that we call governments is very, very minimal. And, you know, even the politicians in Congress, if you're elected to the Congress, your staff, I was, I was about to say your staff does all the work. Your staff doesn't even write the legislation. Typically, you know, when you have lines of legislation, it comes from either lobbyists, which are basically Republican groups meant to corrupt the process with money, or activists, which are Democratic groups meant to corrupt the process with power. It's interesting, for example, that in D.C., the NRA, which is an activist group, technically, are, they're always referred to as lobbyists, not activists, as though they work for Philip Morris. And, and so even in the Congress, if you're elected to the Congress. First of all, if you're newly elected, you have no seniority and, and thus no power because the system works on a seniority basis, very similar to the good old Supreme Soviet. Secondly, as you're probably aware, the Congress has, the House has an incumbency rate of roughly 98%. And for the Senate, it's in the low 90s. So you're a freshman senator with no influence or relevance. And as soon as you get into office, you realize that your job is fundraising. Basically, that's all it is. It's fundraising. It's basically you're elected, you know, based on the number of lawn signs and TV spots that you can buy. You want to keep that position. You want to keep being treated as, you know, a dignitary. And your staff does all the work. You know, one time my uh, stepfather worked on the Hill for many years. He was actually in Biden's staff in the, in the Senate in the 80s. And, you know, he teaches at Hopkins now. And one time I asked him, I said, you know, was there ever a time in your memory when a senator was on the Senate floor and he was listening to another senator speak? And that speech was so convincing that he changed his mind and thus his vote. And my stepfather, who is a very diplomatic gentleman, said, I'm sure it must have happened at some point, but I can't remember an instance. And so, you know, these are not even parliamentary bodies. These are sort of bureaucratic bodies. And you're basically, when you're elected to them, much as if you're elected to the presidency, when you're elected as a politician, you quickly realize that your job is basically being able enough to, to buy enough unearned media as you can and looking good in the earned media. Or now you can sort of be a right wing maverick and your goal is to like antagonize the earned media and look good in the like, you know, conspiracy theory, Fox News world. Own the libs on Twitter, right? Own the libs on Twitter. But it's it's a very it's a variant of the same thing. And so essentially to sort of say, okay, democracy should work this way, or this is a better way of like harvesting information 
to control the system sort of ignores, I think, the much more salient fact that the steering linkage is actually really not hooked up at all. And so you're really, when you're proposing modifications to democracy, you're really proposing either you're proposing things that are changes that are purely symbolic to a purely symbolic system, or you're proposing to turn this form of power back on. And if you look at basically turning something back on, you sort of want to go back and look at how it was turned off in the first place. One of the things that I always like to tell people is there's this very interesting thing which your mind can sort of twitch at for a while where you have these two words, politics and democracy. And you'll notice that one of them has very negative connotations. For example, Trump was just you know, accused of politicizing the Justice Department. He wanted to put a, you know, a political appointee who would do his bidding in charge of the Justice Department. It's clearly very bad to you know, politicize this important you know, agency of our democracy, right? And you're like, wait a second, then, but democracy and politics are synonyms. How can one of them be good and the other one be bad? What would be what would democracy without politics mean? And you know, when you basically start asking these questions, you're like, okay, where do we get the strange idea that democracy is good, but putting politicians in charge of the government is bad? And it really goes all the way back to the early, you know, the sort of negative characterization of politics goes all the way back to the early progressive era. And it really, I mean, it carries with it the great ring of truth, you know, because before the early 20th century, you did indeed have politicians in control of the government. And they were indeed, it was the Gilded Age. It was a very like China-like situation. Things were very corrupt. Things were very nasty. Things got done in a nasty, corrupt way, as they do in many third world countries. And the best way to think of late 19th century America is kind of as a third world country. And so this idea of basically, we are going to disconnect the wires from the voters to power very carefully so that they still feel that they matter, but they still feel that they matter when they root for Ohio State in the Pac-10 or what it's it's not in the Pac-10. What is Ohio State in? Big Ten. Big Ten. There you go. There you go. I see, I see what, what an American I am. I can't even tell the difference between Big Ten and the Pac-10. I know that there's a 10. Uh, you know, when they root for Ohio State, basically, and when they root for Trump, there's something very similar psychologically going on. They know that they can't actually, you know, affect the, the Buckeyes down on the field. But, you know, they're like, I'm supporting them. You know, when you say you're supporting something, you're like, you know, you're really believing that you're giving energy to the Buckeyes. And maybe when you're in the stands, you are. But you're basically, what you're fulfilling is you're fulfilling that sort of second need of democracy, that need to feel like you matter. And when you're cheering in front of your TV for Ohio State or for Trump, you feel like you matter. And you have really, people really believe that Trump would be like the king of America and in charge of the government, you know, if he won the election. And you know, he's just a guy who reads cue cards, man. You know, and and so if you're going to basically do something like liquid democracy, less as a symbolic exercise and more as a practical exercise in restoring the power of democracy, that's a very different way to optimize it and a very different way to look at the question. 
let me let me just rebut a couple things. Or yeah. You kind of mix some things there. Indeed. Our assumption of liquid democracy does not assume Congress. There was one version I I put Congress back into it, but in the pure form, there would be no Congress, right? Right. Essentially, you would people would author legislation themselves, experts, lobbyists, whatever. Eventually, it would filter up, get approved. There'd be a prime minister for each sector who could be recalled at any time. And his job is to faithfully execute the laws as implemented as voted upon by liquid democracy. So, so therefore, the first job of liquid democracy is to get these, you know, 535 people out of the way. Yeah. And I don't believe they want to get out of the way. I don't believe they have any interest in that whatsoever. Indeed. And, and, and so their jobs are very strange and have nothing to do with being statesmen or anything, but they like them and they intend to keep them until they're, you know, I mean, how old is Nancy Pelosi? You know, uh, they got nice pensions, great health care, right? They have a good yeah, gym, yeah. free yeah, bean exactly. soup in the lunch, all no, that No, 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 no. I mean, Dianne Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi are like, and Joe Biden, to be honest, are sort of barely mentally competent. And they sort of don't really quite see how much that brings the whole clown show into disrepute, but it's a clown show. So, okay, so, so, so we want to optimize this thing, not just for using power, but for getting power and also for holding power. Because as soon as you have power, someone else is going to want to take it away from you. Make sense? Makes sense. Basic Machiavelli, right? Basic Machiavelli. So now we have this Machiavellian interpreter. We're going to optimize liquid democracy, which is currently optimized with the incredibly beautiful herbivorous assumption that it is not contending for power against any other force. And we're going to optimize it to actually take and hold power. And so the purpose of our liquid democracy is going to become rather different. So our goal is basically to say we have a large number of people out there and we're building basically what we might call a power amplifier. We would basically like to take, you know, let's say, let's, you know, imagine, you know, Trumpism adopts this. We would basically like to say, okay, we have 70 million people. How do we generate as much power out of those 70 million people as possible? This is a very unfamiliar thought for the kind of thinking that goes into the kind of very, this is a carnivorous thought. This is not a herbivorous thought. And so really when I start with liquid democracy and do this, I'm trying to turn a deer into a lion, right? So, okay, how do we turn the deer into the lion? Well, how do you basically project power upwards. Let's say all of your instincts for liquid democracy, which involve, for example, the delegation is the sort of the fundamental, you know, element of power projection because 70 million people acting individually on their own are like an army without a general or officers. They can't do anything. There's a huge coordination problem. And so basically, in order to solve this coordination problem, they sort of, they don't know what they're trying to do. They're trying to basically, they feel that their enemies have taken power, which is true. And they're trying to get that power away from their enemies. Basic chimp politics, right? So how do you execute on basic chimp politics and basically make this 70 million man and woman Really, let's call it what it is, a, you know, a paramilitary army. You know, Hippolyte Taine, the great French writer of the late 19th century, sort of connected universal suffrage and universal conscription in history. And he was like, you know, 
as soon as the the man can vote, he's issued a musket and and a ballot box. Do you know the original meaning of the word ballot? No. Ballot and bullet have the same etymology. And, and, and so you basically have this paramilitary army of voters and you're trying to concentrate its power and you're trying to amplify its power in such a way that you get a laser rather than a flashlight. And so to maximize the power of this force, for example, I'm going to make a couple of modifications to your design. The first model modification I'm going to make is that in liquid democracy, you can change your delegation at any time. I'm going to put a lockup mechanism in that. I'm going to say, no, actually, your delegation is frozen for, let's say, four years. What does that do? What that does is it basically says, whoever you're delegating power to, instead of constantly watching his back, as to whether, oh, do my people approve of this thing I did or that thing I did, he can act with much more confidence because he's guaranteed your support for the next four years. And so you're basically, by reserving the power to sort of, you know, the, the sort of the goal of liquid democracy is to delegate but not to delegate. It's like, okay, we don't actually want direct democracy because people won't bother and they won't care. This is very realistic. They don't, and they don't know it. anything either. Right? And they don't know anything. Right. You know, and, and, you know, this is not quite true. They only, they know one thing. They want to smash their enemies and take power from them. That's the one thing they know. And so you're basically, your goal in building a system like this is to help you know, it's a user interface. You want to help all of these people fulfill what they actually desire. Normally, when you basically find people's justification for supporting this policy or that policy, it tends to be a somewhat rationalized view of we want to smash our enemies and take power from them. And, you know, the, the, uh, the feeling of the American right, which is not necessarily untrue, is that all of this energy, for example, that's put into gun control, or I love the new, the new, the new, new speak on this gun safety. And, you know, the feeling of 70 million Trump voters by and large is, oh, um, they're afraid of our power and they're trying to disarm us. And they basically broadcast, you know, every school, I mean, school massacres are basically a thing created by publicity about school massacres. And, and, you know, this is broadcast far and loud because basically the real feeling among the American elite is that we're these harmless pink little things that are surrounded by these like gun-toting peasants who can come and take our shit at any time and kill us. And that is basically the feeling of, you know, the terrified feeling of the American elite. And it has been for most of the century. And so, you know, this sense of like, oh, we want this policy or that policy, or like we want gun rights. Why do we want gun rights? You know, lots of good reasons, maybe some bad reasons, but really like, no, actually we can see this outcome where there's a civil conflict and we're trying to preserve our whatever. And so all of these policy struggles come down to, Basically, we want to humiliate and destroy our enemies. And the better we realize that basically that's actually the only thing that people are thinking about and move toward a system that is basically designed to fulfill people's actual psychological needs rather than the ones that they're sort of supposed to admit on TV, the better. So if you freeze, if you freeze redelegation, if you say, okay, 
first of all, I'm going to say you can't redelegate your power. You, you, your, your delegation is locked. You support whoever you support. Secondly, in order to concentrate power and of sort of avoid conflicts between power, because remember, you might have, okay, maybe in a way you have 20 different separate agencies that are doing separate things, but actually you have 20 people that are all contending for power over these agencies. So even if they're like defense and education or whatever, they still have a common enemy and their common enemy is whoever they're trying to take power from. And so they actually, in the goal of taking power, it's actually, even if they're like sort of nominal jobs are, you know, just sort of these herbivorous, oh, let's run the Ukraine war and then, you know, figure out what to do about transgenders in the schools and things like that. You know, their actual goal is to take power from their enemies. And if their actual goal is to take power from their enemies, or even if when in power, their goal is to hold the power that they've taken from their enemies, they need to be on the same page. You can't have 20 people fighting as individuals. So this basically argues again for a model where your delegation is, is focused on directly on a single point and it's as irrevocable as possible. In fact, if your delegation was for life, that would be even more powerful. Moreover, because it would basically solve this problem of projecting your power up and you're projecting, you know, essentially it's like when I look at sort of something like liquid democracy as a power projection tool, I feel like I'm seeing an army that is trying to stab its enemies with arrows. And they're like, I'm, and I'm like, no, you have to shoot the arrow. The delegation involves giving your power away. If you're not giving it away, you're keeping it. You still have a hand on it. And you're like, but I'll lose the arrow. I'm like, well, your arrow is useless unless you shoot it because an arrow is not a spear. And so you actually need to fire that arrow by making this delegation. Moreover, when you look at basically what you're delegating to your leaders, Liquid democracy assumes a very, very low level of delegation of power. It assumes, oh, I'm going to let this person sort of use my authority in a sense to like vote on things, but I'm not going to give them any power over me. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm a free agent. I'm a free man. You know, one of my favorite political lines, which really was an epiphany for me, I mentioned Hippolyte Taine. He's the, the great French historian and literateur of the late 19th century. He wrote this wonderful book called Origins of Contemporary France. And in, in one of his histories on the revolution, he's at the end of the passage on the Jacobins. And he's like, in like 1792, three, whatever, you know, the Jacobins are just almost universally despised. 94. Yep. In, 94. in the summer of 94, they send them all to the guillotine. Whack, whack, whack. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But even after, you know, even after, even after Robespierre goes, goes to the guillotine, it's still like sort of moderate Jacobins that are in charge, right? This is still the revolution. And the fascinating point that Taine makes is he's like, why do the majority of the French people not revolt against this tyrannical minority, which has led them all composed of like disgruntled intellectuals and, you know, basically Antifa types that has led them just to perdition. You know, there's another line where he's like, basically, 
the French public at this time has defined deviancy down, as James Q. Wilson would have put it, to the point where everyone thinks he is well-governed so long as he himself is not being killed. And we haven't quite reached that point um, in the U.S., but you can see various places in the third world where that's kind of the nadir. So why do the majority of the French people not revolt against this. And Taine's answer, which really stuck with me, is he's like, there's no way that they can because the French people are as atomized as the dust on the roads of France. And then he's like, there's not one man in France who can command the unconditional loyalty of a hundred Frenchmen. And I read this and I'm like, Jesus, Mary, mother of God, there's not one American in this country who can command the unconditional loyalty of five Americans, even just their family, right? You know, and so the sense that basically in that time, the sense that political, the fundamental engine of political power is loyalty. And that if you don't have any loyalty, you don't have any power, you can't be expected to have any power was just kind of a fundamental axiom. That was taken, you know, the Romans, for example, assumed that to conquer a people, all they had to do was basically remove their king and their local aristocracy, get rid of Vercingetorix, the Gauls are no longer a problem. And, you know, this is how you conquer a people by destroying this kind of leadership structure and destroying the kind of structures of loyalty that give leaders power. And if you leaders of your enemy don't have any power, your enemy has no power, and they're subjugated. So now we're going to take liquid democracy in a slightly different direction. And we're going to say, okay, the goal for this thing is no longer the collection of the wisdom of crowds, but the projection of power upward toward a center which can act decisively in essentially an entrepreneurial way. Taine goes on in this history to point out, by the way, that the French people can do nothing, but one force that can do something which is organized and does have central leadership and control is, of course, the military, the French army. Exactly. Right. So this is how he segues into the age of Napoleon. So what we're going to do with our liquid democracy structure, which is now assuming a new and extremely ominous form, but uh, I'm going to make it even more ominous, is you're basically, not only are you going to use this platform to delegate your power to this leader, the leadership or structure that you delegate to is going to have, you're going to grant it absolute control over your vote. You're going to get granted absolute control over all forms of political power that you can exercise. So the new form of voting is basically, let's say you adopt this in a purely private way. You build a liquid democracy structure, people, let's call it solid democracy. We're making it solid here. Uh, we're crystallizing it. Let's call it solid democracy. So you're making, you're making this power solid. And so the first thing, and you're doing it totally, this is not a constitutional change. This is just something people decide to private, do a private club called the solid private, democracy club. They got a phone app and they've elected themselves a czar. All right. Yeah. They've got a phone app. So here's, here's what happens when you vote. What happens when you vote is you're very irritated because it's a data entry task. Basically you have a, every, the party, the leader, whoever you want to call it for every election in the United States has a candidate. And you, when you vote, you do not do any work at all. You don't have to think about politics. You basically go to the polling booth and you fill out your ballot according to the sample ballot. It's just pure data entry. You have actually delegated so much of your power that you've cut yourself out of the loop. 
And because you've cut yourself out of the loop, basically you've shot that arrow. That arrow has gone up, you know, to the leadership. So what does the leadership do, for example? Do you know how AOC was recruited? Yeah, yeah, they interviewed a whole bunch of people and it was a casting call. It was a casting call. Literally, it was absolutely literally. brilliant. It was yeah. literally a casting call. These uh, the justice Democrats, I mean, communists basically are like geniuses, right? This is another example of though interestingly, she revolted and and fired them, which is quite funny because they were yeah, on her right. staff and then she fired them. So I know, I know. It just shows how, you know, don't try to do anything halfway, right? You know, so basically, you know, you're doing this all the way. You're doing it seriously. So, and you have serious money because let's say you're, I don't know, Donald Trump or something. And, uh, you know, the point at which I realized that Trump was, it was a joke and wasn't all in is when he didn't sell his hotel businesses. You know, I'm like, this guy actually thinks this will be good for his motherfucking brand. If you'll excuse my French. And the, oh, by the uh, way, I'm still convinced that's why he ran originally. Yeah. He gets some free media to build the Trump brand. No chance in the world of getting elected. And then the thing right. somehow was the right. No, it wasn't. It wasn't somehow. It wasn't somehow. It was that he got amplified by the press during the Republican primary because, you know, the press was like, this is how we're going to sink the Republicans. They were cackling maniacally to themselves as they gave him all the free airtime in the world, right? Yeah, billions of dollars. But also, also, the loop here is actually quite interesting because there's another loop going on, which is the memetics were being refined on uh, on the chans, and then yeah. they were being echoed up through the Donald. And yeah, um, and they somehow got to like this. All they, got, this like, they got strong. They, got, they were strong They memes, got, they got right? strong. Yeah, they were strong memes. But they, they were strong memes, but Trump is not ultimately a strong man, although no, he's, he's an idiot and a fucking coward and a bully and all these things. But he, he had some people who were smart enough, including Bannon, to say, all right, this interesting meme is bubbled up through three levels. We're going to put this into the orange man's mouth. Yeah. He's going to say it. It's going to get broadcast over Fox. It's then going to get... It's going to get mutated into packaged memes, and they're going to go out. The Chans are going to work on some new base memes, and they're going to come up. Uh, it was an ecosystem that the cathedral did not anticipate. Yeah, and 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 I and I guess I would say it was like the sort of broken version of like it, you know I had this sort of John the Baptist you know Russian Revolution of 1905 kind of feel where you're like. There's something there, but it's like firing on only one cylinder, right? You know, and only half the time. Good enough to have won, though, despite it all, right? <laughs> Good enough to win. But of course, when he won, he didn't really, really win anything, right? He only quote won. No, 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 no. We're going to meet. This is a, this solid democracy thing that we're building is a machine for actually winning. So, okay, you're going to recruit basically 535. I guess, you know, filling the Senate is problematic because of the, the six year thing. But, you know, the House can do a great deal. So you're going to recruit. Let's just stick with the House. You know, the Senate will will conform in time. You're going to recruit 435 candidates and cast them just the way AOC was cast central casting. These people are not statesmen. They don't have any real function. They're just basically, you know, it's like you're actually doing this in the UK when you vote for your MP. Like technically you're voting for this person, but you actually have no idea who the person is. You're just voting the party line. So you're actually, you know, the simple, one of the simplest ways to do this is to basically teach Americans is to convert the American legislative system into essentially a parliamentary system. And so in order to do that, you're basically saying, okay, you're part of the $70 million, the 70 million member solid democracy club. You install the app on your phone. 
Getting Americans to care so much about politics that they install an app on their phone. What a concept, right? And you wonder why democracy isn't in control of anything, right? And so now they're like, I've taken the plunge. I'm going to install the app. And basically, the app will be like, oh, there's an election on such and such a day. Go here. Fill in these little boxes. You're done. You are participating politically in a much more effective and powerful way than if you basically were one of those little ants pulling the breadcrumb and, you know, the direction that you want. So what you get is you basically say, okay, you know, with this power, dominating the primaries is very, very easy because primaries have relatively low turnouts. People care very, very little. And if you're basically like, okay, I want to go in my local primary for dog catcher and vote for Trump, you don't have a way to do that. We'll just assume because, you know, the, you know, democracy and populism are synonyms. We'll just assume that this is being done by the populist party. And so you're basically saying, okay, you're going to see, and let's say only a third of these things succeed. So at that point, you've got a third of the House of Representatives. Well, what you do then when you control this is, again, you recognize that these people that, that democracy is a joke. And these people that you're elected are not statesmen. They're not listening to each other debate like they're like Burke in the parliament in 1795. They're just pretty faces. They're good looking. Why shouldn't they be good looking? Their job is to be on TV. And they have a staff. And instead of doing the stupid thing that was done by Justice Democrats with AOC, you say, no, actually, we're going to do this a little differently. We're going to have one combined staff for the whole solid democracy party. And so what we're going to have is we're going to have a block in the House with extremely tight party discipline. And the goal of this block is not to get any policy returns or war lobbyists or whatever. The goal of this block is to be as powerful as possible. Because give a man a fish and he eats for a day, teach him to fish and he eats for a lifetime. Power is like that too. If you don't have absolute power, the best way to use power is to get more power. And so you're basically, you know, I mean, block voting, if you know any like theory of democracy, block voting has, has tremendous power because basically once you have a block that can commit in one direction or another, everybody who has a bone to pick wants that block on their side. And if that block can, can be moved in a single decision, it can be on either side of any issue and reinforce any sort of power structure that it wants. So again, you're basically saying by delegating, by rather than electing like, you know, 200 representatives who are all pulling in different directions and trying to raise money and trying to, you know, whatever, you basically created, you'll notice, for example, when you look at the Congress that you hardly ever see Democratic defectors on issues. You'll see Republican defectors, Democratic defectors used to be a thing back when there were like Southern Democrats with their, you know, but basically when you vote for a Democrat, you're voting for the party. They already understand this. They basically understand this in a very, you know, have a, it's not centralized. It's not efficient. It's not very coordinated, but they basically get it. And Republicans who are the Demo, literally the small D Democratic slash populist party in the U.S. don't get it. But we can go even further than that. So now we've basically converted this, you know, solid democracy into a system for automatically winning all sort of old style elections. You have better turnout. In fact, at a certain level, people are get tired of the data entry process 
And they're like, why do I need to go in the age of computers? Why do I need to go to this ballot box and fill in my little ballot? Can I just register that I support solid democracy and let solid democracy vote for me permanently? I mean, if I could change my delegation, sure. I, you know, I'll go for blue solid democracy. Yeah, liquid democracy would allow that, right? So I just, I, I, I give yeah. all 20 of my proxies to Curtis Yarb, and I don't ever want to hear about politics again for the rest right, of my life. Right, right, right. But the thing is, if, if there's, again, the less you can back out of that, the stronger it is, you know, the less easy it is to back out of a marriage, the stronger, the, you know, the marriage is. And so basically understanding this sort of unconditional, creating this unconditional power bond is the essence of real delegation. Because if your delegation is instantly reversible, if you can say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, then, you know, what kind of security does your wife have? Right. And, and so the more you're willing to bind yourself, the more power you have. People don't understand this. And yet it's, you know, incredibly basic to the problem of contending for power. But let's go one step further than this. Okay, because what you're doing is you're saying, okay, I delegate all of my political power to solid democracy. Solid democracy can do with me what I want. It can, it owns my vote. You know, solid democracy wants, you know, a dog catcher in my town, you know, who'll do a kind of Soros move, you know, uh, with the attorney generals, except for dogs. I'll like, you know, set the dogs free to prey on my political enemies. So we need to elect the right dog catcher, which is really not too different from what Soros is doing, which is brilliant, by the way. Again, like because de the Democrats don't believe in democracy, they're free to hack it. And when you hack it, in a way and use it in a way that it's not intended to be used, it gets much, much more powerful. And the people who take democracy seriously and assume that it's the way things work rather than a mechanism of power that can be used to make things work differently always misuse it and don't understand sort of what a power mechanism it is. Let me take one step further. And now you'll sort of see the end of the line. The end of the line is, what if solid democracy, I delegate my political power to it, but not just my power to vote, my power to participate in the political process. So basically, hey, solid democracy, here I am. Here's my address. Here's my availability. Okay, how would you use that? Let's say that you use solid democracy to elect a new president. The new president gets in and he's like, I'm going to be a constitutional president. I'm going to be a new FDR. I'm going to be the CEO of the executive branch because that's what it says in the Constitution. I'm well aware that there are many forces in the Congress and the Supreme Court that disagree with that. I read the Constitution carefully. I read it twice, actually. And it doesn't say anywhere that Congress is the boss of the president. It doesn't say anywhere that the Supreme Court is the boss of the president. You know, Justice Department, actually, with this new gun safety thing, just, you know, released this press release that was like, well, we disagree with the court's opinion and we're going to keep, you know, promoting gun safety. Right. <laughs> and which is just like beautiful. Right. It's like full Andrew Jackson. And so you're going to go you're going to get elected, you know, president and you're going to go full Andrew Jackson. And you're basically in, in the way that you're going to demonstrate that this is real and proper is you're basically going to do January 6th on January 20th. You're going to have basically the, the you're going to amass, use your followers 
in a demonstration of force, which is what a demonstration is, you know, that's the whole point of a demonstration. I have 500,000 people in one place. 500,000 people can do anything. They don't even have water cannons in this country, right? And so, I mean, January 6th was a, I, I believe actually we were, we were podcasting on January 6th when it was live. As I think I that's recall. right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's funny. And you had this great line where you were like, well, you know, let's, let's see what it means. Let's wait to see what it means, which was perfect. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, I really appreciate the wisdom of, of that line. It's a wisdom that comes from someone with more gray hairs than me. And you were absolutely right. And, but now you're basically saying, okay, let's say he's a very imperfect vessel. Donald Trump is being inaugurated. And in his inauguration speech, and he's been elected by the solid democracy thing, Everybody, he's got 70 million people who have voted, not just by voting, but by installing his app that tell them where and how to vote. And this app has requested location privileges. And so his app basically says, I have 70 million supporters and notification privileges. Remember the thing with the Trump and the emergency, you know, broadcast system where people are like, ah, uh, you know, there's some ways that he could use this that I don't really like. Yeah, have your own private one. Yeah. So you have your private partisan militia broadcast right. system. And so you're basically <laughs> saying, I'm being inaugurated. In my inauguration speech, I am declaring my emergency powers. The one government agency that actually works for me unconditionally, the Secret Service, is now fanning out across D.C. and seizing positions of power. The first one they've taken is the Fed. The Fed is now occupied by me. I will be funding myself, in fact, by simply having the Fed print dollars and spend them. doesn't say anything in the Constitution about the Fed or, I mean, it's not part of the legislative branch. It's not part of the judiciary branch. So... I assume it must be part of the executive branch. So I'm basically going to fund myself directly through the Fed. I'm going to create new institutions. I'm going to take over and shut down existing institutions in much the same way that the fall of East Germany shut down the Stasi. All of these agencies are gone. You can't reform them. You can't fix them. And we're locking the doors today. And you know, so who's going to listen to this? Like, who cares? This is nobody's used to taking orders from the president, except maybe the Secret Service. And they're not used to taking orders like this. I can tell you that. But I got my app. So as I'm doing this, basically, I have a million people in D.C. I have a million people, basically. And I'm like, OK, you know, these people will walk into the federal building in every city and they will occupy it and they will take instructions from me. I am basically establishing direct, I'm federalizing the police. I'm establishing direct control over all police departments. The military, of course, it goes without saying, the National Guard. And all of this is happening at a moment when every Trump supporter is in the street. Every Trump supporter has a, has a phone app telling them where they should be to make the revolution happen. Oh, they can click a little box also if they're armed. And um, <laughs> the and and you know, not only can they be directed, they can be micro-directed. So you imagine if Trump using this app, let's say, wants to take the Capitol. Well, instead of like 6,000 crazy nutbags who wouldn't take any direction from anyone except weirdos, they're all following their app. So he can just basically 
be a general and like draw with a little gesture on his phone. He's like, I'm going to move 10,000 people in the Capitol right now. They'll be there in 45 minutes. And so you're basically seeing this is a somewhat extreme example and is very different from the way Americans are used to going about the circus, which they call politics. But it's like, I think the use of, I'm not necessarily proposing this. I'm not opposing it either. I'm just saying, you know, this is a thought experiment where we've basically taken this like extremely herbivorous idea of liquid democracy, which is basically a sheep. And we've like given the sheep fangs and claws and in fact turned it into a lion. And so, you know, the question is basically, if you knew that you were a sheep and not a lion and that sheep ultimately don't matter. And I believe, you know, the history of the pirate party sort of bears this out, which is that basically liquid democracy as sort of leadership structure level is a perfect re- you know, recipe for infighting and chaos and you know, the absence of what a great political thinker of the uh, 20th century, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, called democratic centralism, if you know the term. And you know, what happens to the pirate party is that basically it can't, because of the structure, even just internally, even in in just in the problem of sort of contending for power, which is, of course, where the pirate party is or was, I don't think there's much left of it now. It can't develop any sort of articulate leadership structure. And so it actually becomes sort of devolves into this sort of infighting about not what government policies should be about, but about what its platform should be and essentially cannot develop any leadership structure whatsoever, and therefore falls prey to the effect that Tain described in terms of the the Jacobins. And so, you know, where basically you have these people that are kind of vaguely disgruntled, it's like Occupy Wall Street in 2008 or something. You have a bunch of people that are vaguely disgruntled with the system, or an even better example would be, are you familiar with the yellow vest protests in France? Oh, of course. Yeah, I use that example yeah. all the time as the failure of Davos man, right? No, that's the success of Davos Man. Davos Man completely succeeded. So, you know, basically what happened there, COVID finally ended those. What happened there is that they... They raised the tax on diesel fuel. People got pissed off and said no, and they almost toppled the government. And they backed down and they reduced the diesel tax. So I would say Davos Man failed, basically. They there. didn't even come close to toppling the government. And their goal was basically, it's like, imagine imagine that you're a battered woman and your husband is beating you. Okay, basically, if your goal, and he like threatens you with a knife, and you're like, you do something, whatever it is you do. And the result is that your husband doesn't stab you. And you're like, I won. No, you didn't win. You didn't even come close to winning. Your goal is basically the fact that your husband threatened you with a knife shows that this relationship is dysfunctional. And what you actually need to do winning is actually getting out of the relationship or changing your husband into a totally different person whatsoever. And so the thing is, you may have a little bit defended yourself. But what I saw in the yellow vest protests is I saw basically 
what I would call cargo cult democracy. So you have these French people, they've been taught in liberty, equality, fraternity, and they've been taught that the way political change happens in France is you make a big, you get a lot of people in the street and make a big foo-for-all. And they're much better at making foo-for-alls in Europe than they, than they are here, but they're also much better in responding to them because they have water cannons and other cool toys and crowd control toys. They're, you know, and the, uh, you know, we saw American crowd control technology on January 6th and I'm just not impressed. And the, um, I mean, maybe that was a little, little bit of pulling the chair move, but you know, so basically, and do you remember the demonstrations were numbered? They're like number one, number two, you know, and they got up to like number 40 or something. And it's like, they kept going out on the airstrips and waving their orange paddles because they were like basically getting people into the street is the way, what about the Paris commune? You know, what about, and it's like, no, actually like the people who actually run the French state, which is more or less run from Brussels anyway, don't care. They just don't care. They're like, oh, this is a disturbance that's annoying. Maybe we need to give these people something. Maybe we'll reverse the diesel tax. But like coming close to sort of gaining power, I think they came as close as January 6th to gaining power. You know, it was it's like Horn Viking guy is going to mount the Senate podium and declare himself, you know, you know, chief archpriest of the United States or whatever the hell. Right. You know, and and it's actually it's actually a joke. There was an event in France in 1934, which came in, in some ways sort of marks. It was this massive right wing protest. The left wing government had, you know, sort of been collapsing in the the midst of a corruption affair, there were these right-wing paramilitary organizations, the Camelot de Croix, the Croix de Feu, you know, French, French speakers will know how to pronounce this correctly. And they basically have this massive, they sort of come very close to a kind of Hitler-style seizure of power. And they sort of basically defeat the crowd control forces and essentially take Paris. And then the leader of the Croix de Feu, Colonel de la Roque, is like, let's not do this. And they all go home. They're like, they're like, we've made our point. Right. And having made their point, they recede again into total obscurity. And again, you know, there's a sort of emphasis on the symbolic rather than the real. And I think my goal in sort of educating people about the realities of power is to get people away from the focus, their focus on this sort of very Big Ten uh, kind of college football experience of participating in politics and like be like, no, if you want to win, you actually want to win. Let me give you another example, which is Egypt. So in Egypt, they had, I'm going to not make this story too long, but in Egypt, they basically had this complicated set of affairs in the Arab Spring where Washington wanted to turn the country over to liberals. Liberals were like, we're, you know, so Obama's wheeled out. He's like, Mubarak's got to go. Mubarak goes, you know, if they wheeled out Obama and he said, Merkel's got to go, he could probably start a civil war in Germany. And, and you know, so we dump, we dump our, our satellite leader, Mubarak. We're like, the liberals are going to rule. But you know what? There aren't enough liberals to elect anyone. So real democracy involves electing the Muslim Brotherhood. They elect the Muslim Brotherhood and the Muslim Brotherhood, who they think are moderate Muslims, turns out to actually believe in this Muslim stuff. Wacky, I know. So basically everybody's fed up. Even the liberals are fed up. The liberals are like, I don't know what to do. But 
Fortunately, Egypt can be rescued from this hell. And they're rescued in this very simple way. There was this movement called Tamarod, uh, which is probably in some sense sponsored by the army, but sort of nobody really knows. And Tamarod had a very simple idea for political change. They were like, we're going to get a petition. It's sort of in some ways an equivalent to solid democracy. They're like, we're going to get a petition and we're going to have everyone in the country sign the petition. And the petition is going to say, dear armed forces, we would like a different government. And they got like 60% of the country to sign their petition using like phone trees and stuff, pre-internet technology, largely internet penetration was pretty weak. And then the Egyptian military was like, oh, why didn't you say so before? And that was all, that was, uh, and Morsi died in jail, the, the Muslim Brotherhood guy. And, and so the sense of basically saying, hey, if you understand political systems and understand that the basic job of a political system is first to contend for power and then to hold power and then to use that power wisely. And if you basically say our first job is to use that power wisely, you're in the land of Onan because you never actually get any power. And moreover, and when you think about democracy in the world of today and reforming that, and you're starting with the assumption that this system is all powerful rather than it is of negligible power, you're really building castles in the air in a way. And so when, when you sort of pull back, you know, the camera really, really far, let's segue into like the case for monarchy here finally because of yeah, well, one let me make a couple of comments yeah, yeah, before we move please. on one i followed your logic and it's interesting and scary but i will say the idea of the orange man with 70 million militia folks is a fucking nightmare and a worst <laughs> case scenario and that every decent american should exercise their second amendment rights to prevent it yeah, fortunately, let's see, let's second that, you know, basically, I think that, you know, the orange man was given enough of a chance to show that he was a real CEO and that he had real leadership capacity. And he blew it. And, you know, some of us may say that's a good thing. Some of us may say it's a bad thing. What really can't be debated is that, you know, he's a phony. And so really, you know, what you're imagining is not the orange man but someone of real gravitas and stature and capacity in this. Of course, that's the problem with monarchy, which we'll talk about. How, you know, you know, this is the, uh, Plato. Yeah, I suppose in theory, being governed by a philosopher king would be a great thing. But find me a philosopher king who is in a corrupt, nepotistic piece of shit, probably inbred after a few generations, et cetera, et cetera. So well, let's, you know, let's, go, let's, let's now pivot, make the case for monarchy, and I will chip away at it with some of these critiques. Jim, have you ever heard of an executive search firm? You know, if you look, if you go out and look at the Fortune 500, you'll find that every one of these organizations is a monarchy. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, by the way, I have been a public company CEO, right? There you go. And I was recruited by a professional search firm as a very broad search of 60 candidates. And I was the last one standing in the room. There you go. There you go. See, see, you know, the best of the Socratic method is really when, when you get the audience to answer their own questions. And so, <laughs> the, um, I, you know, somehow, like, we're sort of presented with this specter of this being a really hard problem. But when we see it done in our own lives, actually, not only is it easy, but it produces, I think, excellent results. I'm sure you were an excellent CEO, Jim. And so 
you're like, okay, what you're seeing basically, if you pull back from our solid democracy example, is what solid democracy is doing is it's basically taking a population which thinkers of a previous century would have said is basically not suitable for democracy as a system. And you're because they have no, you can't really get anyone to rule, whether it's a king or priesthood or whoever, if they don't feel they have the right to rule. And the American voter basically does not feel he has the right to rule. And he's basically been taught that his government should not be politicized, which basically means that he's been taught that democracy sucks. And the problem is that when you go back in history and you look at when the government was politicized, it sucked. And so there's a sort of hard problem there, which is that, first of all, one of my basic views on power is that sovereignty is conserved. There's sort of always a power structure. And what you accomplish if you say, we're going to be a democracy, but we're not going to be a democracy. We're going to be a democracy, but we're not going to have politicians run the government. I always like to remind people that if you go to the least democratic state in the world, what's the least democratic state in the world? Probably Saudi Arabia. I would go with North Korea. Yeah, North Korea. Why, why? North Korea. Well, the, the official name of North Korea is the Democratic P is the DPRK, which stands for the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. So that's three words for democracy in one place name in the least democratic country on earth. And so to really when you boil down sort of what democracy, what does democracy mean in the present era? It doesn't mean that you elect politicians who are in control of the government. It's basically a claim to legitimacy. You know, the name of the DPRK is basically legitimate, legitimate, legitimate Korea. And so what we're looking at when we look at sort of the situation of democracy today is we're looking at a situation that seems transitional between historically unusual periods and historically normal periods. In historically normal periods, in most countries, at most times, most people have no interest in politics. They are apathetic. They are, it's like the situation of the people in China today. Most people in China approve their government. They have, you know, higher Congress has an approval rating of like 13%. The Chinese Communist Party has an approval rating of like 88%. And most people in China feel that they're basically well-governed and they have no interest in politics. And this is not sort of some like genetic or cultural Chinese thing, as anyone can tell you who remembers the Cultural Revolution. You know, this a population can be politically activated and politically deactivated. And what we're looking at today in the situation of democracy, democracy is weak in the 20th century because the population is mostly deactivated. You should think of democracy like the three political forms, democracy, oligarchy, and monarchy, are basically sort of political forces. Today, oligarchy is extremely activated. Monarchy is dormant because there's no monarchy. And democracy is extremely weak. So what we're actually doing with this solid democracy design is we're basically saying, okay, there is a minimal level of political activation left in this population. 
People have no idea how to delegate their power. They have no sense of loyalty. They vote for everything except the presidency. They vote on how many lawn signs they've seen. You know, this is a democratic population whose democratic instincts are almost dead. They don't even understand. It's so dead that they don't feel they have a right to rule and they don't understand what it means to depoliticize the government. They fundamentally don't understand that depoliticizing the government means basically taking their power away from them as surely as if the voting machines were hacked. Because the best way to hack a voting machine is not to hack the voting machine. It's just to disconnect the wire that comes out of the voting machine. And that's essentially the way DC works. And so in order to fix that and in order to give democracy back its power, what we find is that democracy is so weak that we have to build a power amplifier that collects all of its power and uses it as efficiently as possible. One of the reasons that people make this mistake is they sort of LARP, you know, the America of like 250 years ago where everybody's a militia man, everybody has like, you know, they're all arguing about, you know, the legal details of the constitutional convention or whatever. These are not the Americans who exist. The Americans who exist are either part of the oligarchy and they have these oligarchical pro-party responses, or they just want to grill. They just want to grill without, you know, their school pressuring their daughter into a sex change. And the problem is that, like, they basically just want to grill. And so in terms of basically designing a political system that will allow people to gr who just want to grill to be as effective as possible and to like use as much of their power as possible and focus as much of their power as possible on a central point. Basically, what the solid democracy thought experiment teaches you is that at the end, you look at what you've designed and you're like, I've designed the ultimate in democratic power. And then you're like, wait, but I've designed a monarchy. I have actually constructed a monarchy without knowing that I was constructing a monarchy. And at the end, you look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, I see. I have to basically delegate all of my loyalty to one center. And I've recreated essentially the sort of the political contest of the pre-modern era, the immediately pre-modern era, was always this alliance of monarchy and democracy against oligarchy. It was the king and the people against the nobles. And basically, the king was so universally popular. In the English Civil War, most people don't know this. The, the pe people are like, well, is the parliament against the king? The parliament's claim during the whole Civil War was that it was actually the king in parliament, and they were actually fighting for the king who had been hijacked by a mysterious coterie of what they call malignants. So basically, it's as if like blue state voters were like, of course, we support Donald Trump, but we support the real Donald Trump. And we have to get him out from under the arm of like Steve Bannon or something. Right. You know, and it was just absolutely like just completely nuts. Right. And yet such was the popularity of the monarchy that this was the ground on which it was fought. Even when they got to the point of trying and cutting off the head of the king, they really told everyone that they were fighting for monarchy. And so when you look at how there's a historical period, there's a couple of historical periods where we see basically this transition from 
democracy to monarchy, where we see basically the last force of democracy realize that actually the best way for the body of people against the nobles to get what they want is to coalesce behind a single force. And of course, the like characteristic example of it, the example that really formed our world, Napoleon is a good one, but a better example is Caesar. And so what happens, again, the reason for the rise of Caesar is not that this evil person destroys this thriving republic. The reason for the rise of Caesar is that this republic has devolved into a state where what Republican government really means is civil war. And this is the same situation that we have here, except we're a bunch of pussies and our civil war is cold. But the only thing that elections are doing, the only thing that your elections are doing today in this world is not deciding policy, not whatever. It's simply saying, which side am I, am I on in the cold civil war? Is team blue or team red? I use that all the time in my team blue or team red. But the thing is, basically, team red isn't acting like a team. Team blue is acting like a team. Team red is still under the illusion that they're in Norman Rockwell world, right? You know, they're like, oh, I will speak up at my town meeting, you know, that famous, you know, against like, you know, turning my daughter into a boy and I will speak up and, you know, like they actually believe in the system. And Team Blue has been basically the better part of a century hacking this system. And so you're basically having this contest of naivete against Machiavellianism. And Machiavellianism is going to win that one every time. It doesn't matter how many voters you have. And so... When you basically take the logical endpoint of that and you say, okay, our first step is that Team Red is going to act like an actual team, which is utterly terrifying to Team Blue, utterly terrifying. And because you're basically taking this like disorganized mob and you're turning it into an army. It may not be an army that like physically comes out and does militia things. I don't even think that's necessary. I don't even think your solid democracy app needs to have a little box you can click to say, I have a gun. You know, a million people in a city can do anything. They can go anywhere they want. They can do anything they want. Like no one can stop them. And, and that's, that's sort of the specter that really terrifies the American left and just produces anyone like me who had a basically aristocratic leftist upbringing you know, here's something like that. And we're just like, we are all going to be skewered on the pitchforks of the peasants. So, you know, do I want to be skewered on the pitchforks of the peasants? Do I want my like blue state Bay Area friends to be skewered on the pitchforks of the peasants? Absolutely not. And, you know, this was the second innovation of Caesar and also of Napoleon, where they realized that, you know, before Caesar, there was this sort of one of the biggest civil wars was between Marius and Sulla. And they went back and forth. Yeah, they'd been buddies at first, and then they fought it out. And then they fought it out. And and Sulla was the representative of the aristocratic party. We might say Team Blue. And Marius was the representative of the populist party. We might say Team Red. And the failure of imagination of both of these men and the reason they were not Caesar was that when they came to power, they governed as the leaders of their faction. And by governing as the leaders of their faction, they did what was kind of normal in Rome at that time. The first thing to do is basically kill all of your enemies, take their stuff and give it to your friends. Pretty basic chimpanzee politics, right? But it was also not really very farsighted because it couldn't actually eliminate this political 
the system that caused the conflict was still there. You couldn't kill your way. Nobody in Rome was really ready to like, there was just no, I mean, imagine like team red wins and like tries to like genocide team blue or vice versa. It could never happen. Like this is a very, even in that time, which was much more bloodthirsty than ours, that was not a solution. In our time, you can't have, you know, political change and violence are almost orthogonal. Actually, any regime change that you would ever see in this country in our time has to be this joyous, peaceful movement, very like 1989 in the Eastern Bloc. And, you know, my solid democracy thing basically will feel like that. Well, your description of it, it didn't certainly sound very joyous. It sounded like a bunch of fucking thugs, right? No, 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 no. When you have a million people in the street, there aren't a million thugs in this country. When you have a million people in this, the atmosphere of January 6th was joyous was immensely joyous. When you have a million people in the street and they have this feeling of power, that feeling of power is not violence, but joy. And basically the feeling of the crowds that filed into the Stasi building was not violence, but joy. And do you know what happened to the Stasi officers? They were just retired. They're, they're, many of them are earning pensions to this day. I think there may actually be even Wehrmacht officers earning pensions from the German state. And, you know, that's basically what Caesar understood. What Caesar understood is that the whole purpose of like a monarchy, this is a debate I often have with Michael Anton, where he's like red Caesar, blue Caesar. I'm like, no, there was red Marius, blue Sulla, but there was only one color of Caesar. Because Caesar understood that once he'd won the war, the Republic, not a name, the Roman Empire always called itself the Republic until like 600 AD, but the actual process of Republicanism was at an end. It was at an end because basically the Roman people wanted peace and good government much more than they wanted power. They didn't want to be Big Ten fans anymore. Well, let's let's clarify here. You're talking about Augustus or Julius, right? Julius was a popularist, obviously, and Augustus was was this more unifying figure, right? Uh, Caesar was also, Caesar came out of the popularists, but Caesar actually, you know, one of the things, and, and Augustus is part of the triumvirate, is persuaded to order these prescriptions, but his, you know, that's sort of Mark Antony's doing a little more. Caesar does not do any prescriptions when he gets into power. His whole point is basically, okay, I came out of the red state, you know, forces, but I mean, he himself was an aristocrat, right? The popularists are still red, led by aristocrats. And he's like, I'm going to govern all of Rome. I'm not going to basically say, oh, you know, here I'm this red, red state guy, you know, and you've been trying to turn my trans kids, my, my straight kids trans. So I'm going to be a red state, you know, Caesar, and I'm going to basically take your trans kids, blue state people, and I'm going to convert them back to straight. For example, that would be an un-Caesar like thing to do. Caesar instead would basically be like, okay, you know, why are we even arguing about this? Like, who cares how anyone else raises their kids? What? Right? And 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 basically de-escalate that fight. And one of the things you notice. After the rise of the Caesars, Augustus is basically continuing the policy and like directions of Julius is that politics in Rome just disappears. And this whole red versus blue conflict, which in, under various names has like disturbed the peace of Rome for hundreds of years, really 400 years, 500 years, 
since like the Aventine secession or whatever, it's gone. It's over. It's dead. Yes. Okay. Now we're getting to the heart of, uh, as I read it, let me me push back here a little bit. Okay. Because we we don't have infinite amount of time. Because I want to get to the meat of having all these various essays that you wrote and listened to a good part of one of the podcasts. I think you're now heading towards what I would call the strong part of your argument, which is is it may be possible, I'm skeptical, but maybe it's possible to have a monarch who takes the view of the whole people, right? Yeah. And as, as you point out, history has been riven with class conflict, right? In, race, know, race conflict. Just Let's not race forget the conflict, race. ethnic conflict, religious conflict, etc. And you put forth, I believe you lifted it from the Dutch pillarism as yes. a potential to get at that. So, you know, I think if you're going to try to put a positive spin on monarchy, somehow this idea of being a truly unifying force might be your best tale. Oh, sure. I mean, it's absolutely it's it's like the first it's only the first dividend of regime change, but it's sort of the most obvious dividend. The way I would state it is that basically it's like if you look through the door of your microwave, if you put a cup of water in there, you'll see the water boiling. And you might assume if you were a very simple, primitive person that the sort of the water like wants to boil. It doesn't want to boil. It's being agitated by the microwaves. And what's causing all of this factional conflict, basically the mindset of Americans when they vote today is I have to defend myself against the other. The main voting energy that causes people to go to the ballot box is a sense of collective fear. Yeah, clearly true at the moment. It hasn't always been true. Hasn't always been. Lifetime. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, and and even and before your lifetime, it was still less true. So it's basically a long term trend of sort of getting more and more true in general. Yeah, you can go back to, you know, yeah, Nixon versus Kennedy. Neither side worried the other was going to put the put the other in camps, for instance. Yet, I, well, uh, yeah, Nixon didn't expect that basically to be the target of lawfare, right? You know, and he's like, "I'm the president. I get to do everything that LBJ got to do." No, and, I'm talking about the original one. The, uh, the original one. Election. The original yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. But again, you know, the I think if you look at say, wait, wait, let's, let's yeah. go back. Let's go back to the idea of somehow your monarch will actually be a good faith representative of everybody and somehow overcome these, you know, millennial long conflicts. Even the word representative is basically, of course, comes from democratic thinking. You know, Augustus was not the representative of the Roman of factions. He was the ruler of Rome and he basically took responsibility, you know, they say he found Roman brick and, and, and left it in marble. He took responsibility for the state of Rome. But the whole idea of the leader as the representative is a fundamentally sort of democratic conceit that is designed for a democratic age, you know, and and that's not the way, you know, when you look at the way people, the oligarchical networks who actually control public policy in the U.S. today, they don't think of themselves as representatives. They think of themselves as custodians of the public good. And they like that's how it actually works in D.C., right? So that thinking, you know, like the revolution already happened. Like democracy was basically vanquished with in 1933 when FDR essentially becomes a monarch and seizes personal power. 
And like to sort of ignore what we're looking at in D.C. is basically the remnants of the personal regime of FDR. And one of the simplest ways to sell monarchy to a liberal is just to say, America needs new FDR, discuss. And they'll be like, of course, America needs a new FDR. And I'm like, but FDR was a king, man. You know, <laughs> and, and, and they're like, what? Uh, right. And, and so we actually live in the ruins of a monarchy that decayed into an oligarchy. So to say that it's sort of, uh, I mean, FDR was a politician and he never was absolutely in control of the state in the way Stalin and Hitler were. He was just a thousand times more in control of it than, say, Joe Biden is. You know, so, yeah, did he do very Machiavellian things as a politician? He did. Did I like his choices in leadership? No, generally I don't. But was he Hitler? No. And so, you know, you're basically looking at most people expect that in a transition in the United States from democracy to monarchy, you would have a great number of people who would resist this probably by force. They would rise up in the streets. And like that is very much a LARP. That is imagining like why don't they rise up in the streets now? They All the power has been taken away from them. The power has been taken away from them by sort of, you know, hidden oligarchical policy networks rather than a single leader that they can focus their hate on. Basically, these are just not people who rise up and get violent. Very, very like the population of the Roman Empire and, in fact, basically all monarchies throughout time. And... So you're basically saying when you look at monarchy, this is the natural system of government for a fundamentally apathetic and disengaged population who just wants to grill. Moreover, most of the people that care about politics care because they fear the other side. And if that fear is gone, if it sort of becomes very quickly clear that this is Caesar and not Sulla, once that fear is gone and once you have a sense of like, oh, I see the right wing nutcases are not actually trying to change the way I live or, you know, make lesbianism illegal or whatever. They're not trying to turn me into Saudi Arabia. They're just trying to keep their own stupid peasant culture that they have as peasants. I'm like, OK, I don't feel threatened by the peasants being peasants. I think it's sad that they, you know, treat their children this way, but they think it's sad that we treat our children this way. Fine. Right. You know, and sort of all of the remaining air in this bubble of sort of apathetic people who whose only exception from apathy is fear. And once that fear disappears, it's universal apathy. And people are like, why do we have this crazy system in the first place? Moreover, as basically efficient government takes hold, they're seeing everything get cleaned up, everything work better. You know, you'll go to San Francisco and you'll be able to lick the streets and the, uh, try, try doing that now, you know, and, and like the sort of the appearance of basically chaos and ruin kind of being reversed. I don't know if you, as a CEO, you probably spent some time traveling around the world and, you know, Donald Trump made this remark that people were like, what? He's like, when you fly back from like 
Shanghai or Dubai to America, you feel like you're flying into a third world country. Yeah, JFK always yeah. felt like, you know, some piece of shit in the Congo or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And so the thing is, you know, you have this thing that people, the French had under, under the Jacobins, where it's like they feel that they're well-governed so long as they themselves are not being killed. And then you start defining deviance up and you're just like, holy cow, a year after we did this, I can walk safely in any city in America, anywhere, at any time of day or night. Wow, that's normal. That feels normal to me. That feels normal and right. But what was this thing we had before? That was not normal and right. That was weird. And, you know, and that's how the people in sort of the post-Soviet world regard the Soviet past is like this sort of like nightmare that they were living in but didn't know how to awake from. And so you have you're going to have this sense of sort of awaking from this nightmare that you didn't even know was a nightmare. You're going to be in New York, but the subways are going to look like the subways in Shanghai. And, you know, you're going to be like, wow, oh yeah, I remember when this was like scary and filthy all the time. And I was like, oh, it's normal. This is just part of living in a major city. You know, if it wasn't scary and filthy, we would have no culture. (laughs) Right? You know, and you're like, what? (laughs) Right? That makes no sense. You know, And, and so, you know, to sort of see this like basically national, you know, nightmare ending concretely in front of your face is like a feeling that Americans have never experienced. They have never experienced anything like it. And so, you know, basically that takes their remaining sort of fear energy, reverses it, into a sense of gratitude that is added to the fact that they, they're not, these are not people that are sort of used to contending for power in any real sense. Basically blue state people just want to live their nice, you know, fancy cosmopolitan lives. Red state people just want to raise their families and grill. And now you're like, you can live your nice, you know, you're a blue state woman. You can get an abortion because that's your culture. You know, and if I'm from Utah, I find that weird. And, you know, if you're from Utah and you find that weird, maybe it's time to switch cultures. But, um, you know, the like the sense of like, if you're really thinking about how to devise peace, you basically realize that it's very easy as long as that microwave isn't on and making the water bubble. And what's making the water bubble is that basically you have a political system that gives each of these parties a way to hurt the other. And so basically, kind of the case for monarchy to sum up is that it's a much more sustainable system than it appears. And one of the reasons why monarchy looks very unsustainable in the modern world is a simple factor that most people haven't considered, which is, I heard this joke told somewhere, it was by some, in some foreign regime. Why is the US the only country in which there have been no revolutions in the last 250 years? The answer is very simple. What is the only country in which there is no American embassy? 
<laughs> Probably some truth to that, right? Uh, right. And so, you know, the thing is that basically it's like when I, you know, I was in Portugal recently and I was talking to, you know, some of the local Portuguese dissidents and I'm basically like, look, you know, 1989 is the closest equivalent you have for how the system changes. And the lesson of 1989 is that it can't change from the periphery. It changes from the center out. All attempts to overthrow the communist system in the Eastern Bloc until 1989 failed because they were basically premised on the fundamentally false belief that these were independent countries rather than provinces of the Soviet Union. And similarly, if you proceed in Portuguese politics with the assumption that Portugal is an independent country, you're sort of doing math from the basis that two plus two equals five. It's like, you know, doing, it's like when we talked about it at the start of the podcast, redesigning democracy with the assumption that democracy is actually in command. And the, you can prove anything if you assume that two plus two equals five. Two plus two is not five. But, you know, when you basically... You know, in, in the EU, they actually talk very explicitly about the democratic deficit because the EU is the most undemocratic democracy ever devised. There's this EU parliament, which is basically has the powers of Queen Elizabeth II, not the first. And then you have the European Commission, which is like the like deep state, but it's actually like a better centralized deep state. And everything comes from the European Commission, which is completely profoundly, utterly, there isn't even a pretense that these people are appointed by politicians. They just appoint themselves. It's like the final stage of oligarchy. And the thing is, once people realize that it's actually fine, life in Europe now is basically fine. It kind of sucks in some ways. There's, you know, it's not sustainable. There's some. It's behind the curve. It's you it's know, behind the of, curve. It's but it's still but it's still basically fine. And so it's a museum. It's a museum of Western culture as yeah. it was sort of. Yeah, it's, it's a theme park. It's a theme park. I always I always compare the state of say Paris today to the state of like Athens under the Roman Empire. What is Athens under the Roman Empire? It's Athens land. It's a it's a theme park. Go to Paris. You're going to Paris land, right? And so. Actually, the voters have already accepted that they can delegate their power to someone else and not get it back and not have it, and life can be fine, and basically they can grill. And the only problem with oligarchy is not that it's not democratic. It's actually brilliantly designed to oppose and resist democracy, aka politics. I find it's just a really good sort of exercise to keep reminding yourself of the equivalence between democracy and politics, because, you know, it's one of these things that you'll forget in five minutes because you're sort of so programmed against it. But, you know, these the European system of government is even better fortified against politics than the American system of government, which is extremely well fortified against politics, as Donald Trump discovered and, and his voters discovered it. And so you basically, once you acknowledge that it is possible to live in a normal country, which is not in practice democratic, all you're discarding when you discard democracy is you're discarding the empty husk of this theory. You're discarding sort of a tradition of legitimacy, which is the same tradition of the legitimacy that causes North Korea to call itself the DPRK. And like, and that tradition sort of doesn't mean anything anymore concretely. 
It doesn't, you know, it's like acknowledging, it would almost be like acknowledging that Ohio State is actually an NFL minor league team. You're like, oh yeah, this actually has nothing to do with the university. These players are not being educated. This is just minor league football. And you can still root for Ohio State, like knowing that it has nothing to do, you know, um, um, it's just a name. Maybe the university no longer exists, but the team is still called Ohio State for, for historical reasons, right? You know, and it's like just you have you have this sort of hold on this feeling of democracy that comes from sort of remember when we started talking about liquid democracy, where I was talking about the two objectives of it. One is to like collect the wisdom of crowds and the other is to make people feel powerful. And it's giving people this sort of feeling of relevance in this kind of way. That's very similar actually to pornography because you're basically sort of like, okay, you know, when you root for Ohio state that you're not actually on the field, you're not actually supporting them. You're just clapping in front of the TV, but it feels like you're part of the Ohio state army. And like, there's something deep in your genetic code that, that responds to that feeling of being part of the army. And to basically sort of have the maturity and the adulthood to abandon that illusion and say, I don't need that illusion. I don't need my porn anymore. I'm going to go get married instead of having porn. And, you know, marriage is, you know, you're marrying a real person. They have real issues. Like it's not a fantasy. Their body isn't perfect. And yet there's a sort of maturity to that. And so the maturity of actually letting go of this thing that has sort of become a fake and instead saying, well, I'm going to direct my collective energy toward creating a government that actually works and doesn't do crazy shit like starting a civil war in Russia or deciding it needs to collect all the back coronaviruses or other just like whack-ass stuff that's really started affecting everybody's lives uh, in not a good way and is not getting better, you basically say, no, actually, we're going to decide, look at this American experiment, and we're going to put it in context, and we're going to revert to the political system that most human beings have used for most of history. And we thought we were better, but we're actually just normal human beings. And I think that's a very mature decision. Well, let me push back. This will probably be the last bit because we're at, a, at our time limit now. Now, one, I would hit, hit a few points here. One, I would suggest that our current broken politics is a function of the game theoretic predictable outcomes of our institutional structures when in the case of no strong foreign adversary. Mm-hmm. And that it is our institutions that, by the way they're designed, produce this pulling away and polarization. And then you get a bandwagging effect that you're either in team red or team blue, or you get fucked by them both. So yeah. I think there are some ways to fix the problems we currently have without going to a monarchy. Next, the closest benevolent templates I can find in recent history for what you're suggesting. Why are you are, why, why are you why are you focusing on recent history? Well, because I Recency effect, right? Let me give two examples, and then I'll give you some counterexamples. Two good examples, I suppose, for this kind of benevolent, good-of-the-people governance would be Singapore, since it's Mm -hmm. founding, basically, and Hong Kong prior to about five years ago. 
where, yeah, they had the pretense of some sort of democracy, but everybody knew there wasn't any. And that Singapore, you could literally lick the sidewalk if you were so inclined. On the other hand, and this is, of course, the most obvious, easy, and maybe puerile objection, let's look at the people that centralized power in the recent history, say the last hundred years, you know, wonderful folks like Hitler and Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao, etc. So the mechanisms. First of all, I don't really, I, I don't really understand this like 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 obsession with recent history, and the um, the thing that you observe in sort of with this recency bias is that you're when you look at these powers, you see two things. One is that all powers in the last 200 years that have set themselves against, quote, democracy, have actually set themselves against the Anglo-American international community. And so they've been in a state of rebellion against power. They've essentially been wartime regimes, whether they liked it or not. The ability of, for example, when you could say compare Hitler, let's compare Mao to Deng Xiaoping. You know, Deng Xiaoping takes the power that Mao establishes where the goal of Mao's ruthlessness is to reestablish Chinese imperial sovereignty by disconnecting himself from the American and Russian empires. In order to disconnect himself from the American and Russian empires, he basically has to destroy everyone in China. A good chunk of them, at least. Who is a servant who who serves that empire rather than his empire. There's sort of nothing equivalent in the world that we live in, there's no empire that our empire is revolting against. There's no sense that, okay, if you have an American Caesar, he needs to destroy all the sympathizers of China and all the sympathizers of Russia. This internal opposition simply doesn't exist. And so, you know, when you look at sort of more objectively at these regimes, and I agree that they were terrible regimes, but they basically faced a situation where their grasp on sovereignty was so weak and so limited. And basically, you know, Germany and Japan in the 1930s, I'm not talking about Hitler, who was kind of a nut bar, but Hitler's basically nut bar stuff wouldn't have been possible without support from sort of an old German deep state. And the old German deep state, really a World War I and before era thing, was primarily focused on attaining sovereignty, as was Hitler in his own crazy way. And so that sense of the sort of this being this kind of revolt against the global order is already very present in the 1930s. And it's also present in, say, Orban in Hungary, in Franco, in Spain, all of whom are kind of lesser Hitlers and are less crazy Hitlers, certainly, by any means. All of these things seem doomed to me. And I like thing when things are doomed, I like if they're like doomed peacefully. I like if they're like doomed without a whole lot of violence. You know, my favorite 20th century dictator is Salazar in Portugal, who, you know, was was an economics professor, basically. You know, and people don't know this, but Salazar actually killed off the fascists. Yeah, sure, sure. Some people say that Salazar was a fascist. No, actually, he he actually is. It's an interesting example. I actually knew a little bit about Salazar. Yeah. Is that he was an example of someone who tried to be nonpartisan. He literally liquidated the fascists. As did as did Frank. 
Mexico, and he also liquidated the communists. And and he was just like, no, we're going to have a new state in Portugal, and things are going to be, you know, basically at peace. And if you look at the history of Portugal before Salazar, you look at Portugal's experiments with uh, with democracy, they're, they're not pretty. And so you really, even in the 20th century, even when you accept this sort of deranged recency bias and you're like, we're not going to talk about Louis XIV, we're not going to talk about Elizabeth I, we're not going to talk about Napoleon, we're not going to talk about Caesar, you know, that's all old stuff. Who cares about that old stuff, right? You know, you know, only young people matter. If you accept this crap, never trust anyone over 30, right? You've heard that. And maybe you even once believed it. And, I still believe you know, it. You still believe it. <laughs> no, you know, it's better if you not really better if you just never trust anyone, right? You know, then it, then it's a a fortiori, right? You know, and then you're never disappointed. Then you're never disappointed. That's exactly right. And so, yeah, the sense that the the like even when you look at the 20th century, you know, number one, you can find examples like Deng Xiaoping, who he did learn a lot from Lee Kuan Yew, but I think that Deng Xiaoping has to be regarded as the greatest political leader of the 20th century, just in terms of his like track record and, you know, absolute power for 30 years. And the like, and he took that absolute power that Mao had created in this very bloody and ugly way. And he actually used it for the good of China. And, you know, so for me, like, it's really, you know, the Hitlers and the Stalins are these anomalies. These are sort of attempts at monarchy in the age of democracy and within the context of a global democratic, really oligarchic, essentially, empire. That is very different from the fall of this empire when the fall comes from the center. And when the fall comes from the center, instead of being like the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, which is this ugly, violent, failed thing that nobody should have participated in. It becomes the Hungarian Revolution of 1989, which is like pure joy and nobody is ripped limb from limb by the mob or anything like that. Nothing like that. And, and, and so, if anything, the revolution is a little too weak and doesn't sort of get rid of all the pockets of old officials or whatever. But even if it did, it wouldn't do it by like hanging them in the streets. It would do that by saying, okay, your building's closed. Here, we've transitioned you to a new pension plan. You must have beautiful roses in your garden. Why don't you work on those? You know, and 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 they did. And 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 sort of that sense of like a sort of joyous, like people always associate sort of regime change with a kind of feeling of tension and violence. And it's actually a feeling of relaxation. It's a feeling of opening. It's a feeling of like as soon as I stop caring about this thing, it just falls. And developing that sort of mindset of like sort of the like peaceful overcoming in that sense, but a peaceful overcoming that involves coming together. I think that any experiment in monarchy that doesn't have that feeling is doomed. And I think it's a bad idea. And I think that as soon as you're on that track, you'll basically feel the rightness of that track. All right. I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm going to finish with, right. a, with a, a final statement or two of myself, which is, please. all right, I can see that it's possible that one could have a, a benevolent monarchy. However, looking at history. Recent history. Uh, or, <laughs> and even deeper history. That in general, I'm sticking with Churchill. Democracy is the worst system except for all the rest. But 
you know, our current institutional structure is very clearly broken. Now, on that, I think we agree and that uh, we need some new thinking. I would suggest new thinking in, in better forms of democracy. Well, I would say I, I was intrigued to dig into your ideas. And, I, you know, I think that, that you have some very interesting things to say. But at the end of the day, I was not convinced. Great. Wonderful, Jim. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to disagree. And it's been a huge pleasure being on your show again. And next yeah. time, next time, perhaps we can we can dig in a little more to this question of what makes a monarchy a benevolent, as you say, and how you keep it that way, because I agree that's a very important question. That would be very interesting. All right. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.